you have got some difference makers up front loaded with all those skill players and just a, a confidence that you can do whatever you need to do to take apart that defense on the other side. Hello and welcome to Always College Football. It is officially December 18th and we appreciate you coming to us from wherever it is you're coming to us from. Whether it's the podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, whatever podcast platform you use. If you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel, we greatly appreciate you being here leading up to the holiday season. We're a week away from Christmas and the gifts keep on coming here in the college football world. Our calendar is a disaster, but it does offer some really entertaining conversation. So today we're going to break down the portal. We're going to break down what Chip Kelly had to say leading up to his bowl game there in LA. A lot of very interesting takeaways to be had from what the head coach of the UCLA Bruins said. I think there's some things I very much agree with. I think he is definitely accurately forecasting where we're going as a sport, but a few things that I didn't totally get on board with as well. So we'll discuss that as well. We'll talk a little bit about some of the teams that are making a huge splash in the portal. We've done, up to this point, we've talked mostly about players, individuals that are potentially on the move. Well, today we're going to break down five or six, maybe seven teams that have done a really good job up to this point. And then we will tell you about the new defensive coordinator for the Penn State Nittany Lions. Very interesting hire and a very good hire, I might add, for James Franklin and staff. That's now two that I think they've knocked out of the park, at least up to this point. But we're going to kick off today's show by talking with Brock Heward about the Washington Huskies. The last couple of weeks, we've taken a day to go deep in the weeds for each of the four playoff teams. Last week, we did Michigan and Alabama. This week, we will do Washington and Texas. So we brought on Brock Heward, who knows the Huskies like the back of his hand. So we'll get things started there in our conversation with Brock Heward. I fired up to have Brock Heward on the show. I've long been an admirer of Brock, all of his work, not just on television, those of you that see him working alongside Jason Benetti, but also does a great work, great job there in Seattle doing radio as well. So, Brock, we appreciate a couple of minutes, man. What's going on? Yeah, you got a great good time in Seattle. Well, at least for one team, Seahawks are struggling, Mariners are spending no money. You know, some other some other cracking are terrible. But yeah, the Huskies. How about them Huskies, man? Thirteen and zero, greatest year that you know I could ever remember. Certainly, the national title year they were. 12-0, and 0, the 12th against Michigan in the Rose Bowl. So some uncharted waters, man. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal season for Kalen and Penix and crew. Well, it all, only takes one, right? Uh, as a long-suffering Dallas <laughs> sports fan, like if we had one good team, we're yep. in pretty good shape. But those yep. days, even one good team was asking for an awful lot <laughs> uh, when SMU and TCU were terrible. Um, so it happens. Yeah. Uh, it's all good. But – Buddy, we appreciate it. I know you know this team like the back of your hand, and we've been going down and just kind of breaking down each of the playoff teams and and kind of doing a deeper dive. Um, not saying that I need you to go through and you know do the pronunciation guide with me or anything, but let's kind of start off the top, and we'll start with Washington's offense. Um, the one thing that stood out to me, and I, I feel like you will, will probably see it comparably because I think we see it kind of the same way. I'm amazed at how much people are kind of assuming that this is just, oh, they just throw it all over the yard, throw it all over the yard. I think there's more to it than that because mm -hmm. of how Dylan Johnson came on at season's end and how they progressively got just a little bit more balanced. Not that they're ever going to be 50-50, 
but they got a little more balance in showing you that they can run the football. So we'll start there, just philosophy. Yeah. How much of their offense is based on what they do through the year and how much of it's based on what they do on the ground? Yeah, I think uh, the the philosophy, Greg, and you and, and Sean are going to have just an awesome game to call. I mean, both of these playoff games are just going to be are going to be phenomenal. But I think the philosophy, like any great system, like Sarks at Texas and in Michigan, and all four teams that are left, is to have balance. And everybody can define that a little bit differently. Um, but to me, balance, and this is probably going back to my years with Peyton in Indianapolis, is we take whatever the defense is going to give us. And whatever numbers are favorable, we're going to take advantage of them. And they've got the opportunity to do it. You know, these are two teams in Texas and Washington that shift in motion as much as anybody. I think at the end of the year, Washington was right around fifth in the country when it comes to that pre-snap movement. And so it's not just what, you know, I experienced in Indy with Peyton, which was two formations and very, very clear and very, um, it would declare numbers in the box very simply. They do it through bunch and motion and shift and show one formation and get to another and make sure, you know, they get what they want, man, zone, numbers, run, pass. So they really, I, I think, strive for that balance to just take whatever the defense is going to give them, Greg, and have an experienced group, a lot of veterans, a lot of leadership to be able to do it. And, yes, if those teams are going to play shell defense, if they're going to play too high, then Dylan Johnson's going to run for 1,000 yards. Um, I went back and looked at the numbers in November through that brutal gauntlet, playing ranked teams, playing Utah, playing Oregon, playing Oregon State, playing a, a rival in Wazoo just down the stretch. In the month of November, they averaged five yards a carry. And you average five yards a carry, you're top 20 in the country. So the overall seasonal stats don't look like that. Dylan Johnson wasn't right till about mid-season or so. A knee injury, just never they, – I, I don't think – you know they, they said it, so I can say it. I, I – they didn't anticipate it was going to be as big a deal through camp as it ended up being. It took him longer to get right. But when he did, and with some of the boys up front, and with some of their multiple tight ends, they can do a lot of different things, take what the defense gives you. And when it meant run in November, they were able to do that, run their way to an unblemished record. It's funny that you say that because, I mean, he was brought in to be a complimentary piece. I mean, Cam Davis was, right? Yeah. That was the guy. Hey, Cam Davis is going to be the guy. And then you get a little of Dylan Johnson. He's going to be kind of the bruiser. Uh, so I think he just got, like you said, I had the same stat. Five yards per carry against Arizona, Oregon, USC, Utah, Oregon State, and Oregon in the second go-round. The only time he didn't average more than five yards per carry was against Utah. And I think that was his most impressive running performance. Like that dude ran through yeah. so many tackles in that game. Yeah. And I know the numbers, you look at oh, 104 on 23 carries. Like how hard is that? I mean, but when you watch the runs, it was really impressive. And I'm yeah. sure you probably felt the exact same way. And you mentioned it there briefly in passing because everyone talks about, like you and I could talk about Penix for an hour. But guess what? Everyone else in college football is doing the exact same thing. I'm more impressed with the depth of their receiving core and their tight ends in particular. I mean, I think Westover's really good. Uh, I think Devin Culp's had plenty of moments where he stepped up at times this year. Josh Cuevas had the big play against Arizona. Like, there are guys in that tight end group that are really... I think underappreciated nationally, and that gives them a little more versatility than some might imagine. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that position group as a whole. 
No, I would totally agree. And and once again, that is playing to a hey, whatever we have an opportunity to take advantage of. What what can we do well? I had texted Kalen after the Oregon win, and he just dropped so much credit on his staff, both defensively and offensively, for the plan they put together. And and they were going to wear down Oregon, and they were going to run those guys. And, and Oregon has more length and size, and and as much as anybody they would see in this playoff, save for maybe some of the bulk of Texas, but you saw in that game let's get them running let's let's run a lot of our horizontal and our bubbles and we get these guys and they just wore them down and then the run came along with it so yeah when you have three tight ends that you're comfortable with when you've got four or five receivers you're comfortable with when you got a couple backs you're comfortable with when you got a a 60 or signal caller that's seen everything in his career and can get to whatever they need to get to within the volume of their playbook they're comfortable and then some of the secret sauce greg and, and you'll get to this i'm sure as you prep and watch film and study you're going to see Troy Fautanu, their left tackle, and he'll project to be a guard at the next level because he's not long enough for the NFL. But Jake Dickert, the coach at Wazoo, said leading up to that game, this dude's the best lineman I've ever seen on film. I, yeah, I, he, he's the best I've ever seen. And he is so explosive, and he is so powerful, and he is so athletic and strong. Their center, second-team all-conference, is one of the lightest centers <laughs> At a 275 against Tavondre, he's going to be giving up nearly 100 pounds, but the guy moves, and he knows what he is, and he knows what he isn't. And the right tackle is going to be an NFL guy, too, in Rosengarten. So you have got some difference makers up front, loaded with all those skill players, and just a, a confidence that you can do whatever you need to do to take apart that defense on the other side. You've been on teams, you've covered teams that have been in that kind of mode that Hey, man, whatever you can do, you can't stop us because we've got all this weaponry and all this scheme and all this belief in our personnel to really get after whatever you want to try to do defensively. I, I do think that's another part of their team that is so vastly underrated. People talk about the tackles, understandable, with Otanu on the left side, Rosengarden on the right side. Like They're really good on the edges. Yep. Like We know that. But I, you referenced Parker Brailsford there at center is awesome. I think Kalepo is is really solid as well at left guard. And then Julius Bulo, who who was out and missed a little time. I mean, he's 6'8", 310. Yeah. I mean, these are like big physically imposing guys there at guard that help overcome what is an undersized center in Brailsford. And Brailsford, I think, is really smart, too. Like, they do a lot of pin and pulls. So he's athletic. Like, they're not going to put him in a one-on-one -on -one situation against Tavondre Sweat. Like, that's just not going to happen. Like, it's, it's, that's not advantageous. And Ryan Grubb, which I find is shocking, his background as a play caller, he's an offensive line coach. That's right. I mean, he's... Like he understands protection. He understands like, all right, well, we can't move that guy, so maybe we leverage him with a pin and pull. So I, I think Grubb is really thoughtful when it comes to their plan. And to see an offensive line coach develop this next level understanding of route tree and route concepts and being able to create space, it it's really it's really fan fantastic. I mean, I, I don't really know how else to describe it. So your experiences with Grubb have been what? Yeah, he's A1. And, and you know, it, Greg, as you say that, my mind goes to this is a very unique uh, playoff situation with three of the four teams. And, and here's how. Uh, you know, the, the OC at Michigan, Moore, is an O-line guy. He's an O-line coach. I went through the 133 FBS teams when we had Michigan earlier this year. 
I want to say, gosh, out of 133, there were maybe 10 coordinators that had O-line background, uh, like Kyle Flood. You know, Kyle Flood is the OC at Texas, but Sark is obviously the coordinator and the play caller and everything else. But by title, Kyle is it. And you'll find that at five or six other schools. But to actually be an OC and an O-line coach, Sherrod's the only one there. Coach Moore is the only one there at Michigan doing that. Grubb is an O-line background guy, kind of like Andy Reid. Right? There are not many guys that come out of that O-line world. And I, I've asked these guys, like, how did you do it? Because the ones that do seem to be pretty darn successful, right? You got two of them in the playoff situation here, the Final Four, and obviously Andy Reid, one of the best in the world at, de- at designing. And you know this, Greg, because most O-line coaches like to be like in this world, tackle to tackle, right? I mean, it's just that I'm just right here. I, mean, I got to take care of each five. It's half the offense. It's, don't stress me out. Like, don't bother me. Let me just take care of this. But the ones that then go, hold on a second, I'll take care of this, and then I got all of this, and the foundation's here, but now I see all of it, and it's protection first, but I see all of it, you have an opportunity to do some pretty unique things, and this playoff is is loaded with them, and I hope a, a celebration, I know you will on your broadcast, and I know on the other side they will as well, because it's pretty darn unique to see O-line guys really come out of that world, and when they do, you have a chance of huge success. Joined again by Brock Heward. We have to move to the star of the show. I mean, we waited 10 minutes in our Washington breakdown to get to Michael Penix and the receivers. And I, I really, I have a heart. I, I, first of all, I'm really amazed at the depth because it's been a group that has had to overcome, whether it be inconsistencies. I mean, shoot, Jalen Polk's a thousand yard receiver and had drop issues down the stretch. You know, I mean, like it's, uh, you, you've been without Jalen McMillan, who I think been a lot in some publications was a preseason all conference contender for sure. And potentially maybe even some publications preseason all American. And yet they've been able to overcome some of the challenges of guys being in and out of the lineup and guys maybe that were banged up. And yet, the passing attack hasn't skipped a beat. Uh, what does that say about Roma Dunze? Uh, what does that say about the rest of the guys in that room? Yeah, Rome is an absolute stud. I think he's going to be the highest drafted of any of these Huskies. I, mean, I was looking at some lists just this morning, actually, and they got four guys in, in the top 50 of most early kind of projections of what the draft is going to be and in Penix and Braylon Trice and Tatanu we talked about earlier. And then Rome's going to be the first one picked. He is, he's just different, Greg. I mean, he is six, three. Um, when you see him in person, I mean, he is a legit six, three. This isn't a, a get to the combine and be six, one. I mean, he's six, three, he's 218 pounds. Uh, he's, he was a 10, 600 meter guy, you know, state player of the year out of Nevada there at Bishop Gorman powerhouse school, and those are just kind of the raw goods. But then when you watch the body control, when you watch the hands, when you watch catch radius, when you watch the trust that he and Michael have, and you go out to practice, and I've probably been uh, half a dozen practices over the, the last couple of years. And, you know, it doesn't, it reminds me really of the guys down the road on the 405 with the Seattle Seahawks. Like they're just pros. Like that just looks like Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf and those guys going to work. Like if you didn't know the difference, right? If you just kind of flew in and you went and watched those guys practice at the Seahawks facility and watched those Husky receivers practice, you'd be like, 
Yeah, same level. <laughs> I mean, Polk and, and Rome and those guys are, are pros. Maybe not as freaky as DK, but like, yeah, the way they work, the the precision of their routes, the mentality, the maturity, all of it. I mean, it's just off the charts. And and I was talking on my radio show. I'm like trying to find a comp for Rome. Like, who is he at the NFL level? Like, he's not as big as Mike Evans, but he's got a lot of the same skill set. And he's not as explosive as Jamar Chase, but there's a lot of the same skill set. And an NFL scout texted me. He's like, he's Devontae Adams. And I'm like, man, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, that there's there's a lot of similarities of using your body. You're covered, but you're never covered. You have and you gain the ultimate trust of your QB at any time and any one on one. They're going to look for you. And yeah, that's a pretty special crew led by Rome right at the very top of it. Yeah, I obviously feel good about having him on the outside. Penix is, of course, amazing. Um, we probably won't spend as much time on him as we should, just because we have <laughs> already yeah. talked Who's about he how great he you is. of. Does Penix um, remind you of anybody over your years of playing and covering? You know, I, I think that there is a unique ability that he has to throw guys open, and he throws the spots. You know, in college, you just watch guys, and they're looking at the receiver, and like he trusts his receiver to get there, which is a, ten, yep. you know, a testament to the guys getting where they need to go. But he throws the spots. I remember a game in the, the Cal game in particular, and I know it's Cal, and I know we shouldn't put a ton of stock into it. I get that, but... There were throws that he was executing where a safety be coming over the top, a corner be underneath it, and there was about a two-yard window that he could maybe throw it into or his receiver could adjust to make the play, and he's throwing it there, and he doesn't miss. And people are like, well, you know, the accuracy at times down the stretch, yeah, he was playing in weather half the time. Now he's in a dome. So I I, I mean, you know and I know how hard it is to be effective when – the climate is not ideal and he had to play in multiple games like that. And yet the accuracy was still pretty sporty, like third down, got to have it scenario against Oregon state, boom, back shoulder, like no problem. And I I think it's, I think he's as accurate as they come now, as far as like comps, I don't know if I've really given that a ton of thought just yet, but he doesn't miss. I mean, he, and he, the throws he tries to execute are like nine out of 10 on the difficulty sketch. Correct. Correct. I remember this from day one, you know, my nephew was there, he's ultimately transferred and, and he was in a quasi competition that spring, but it was pretty clear when Mike came in, like, this is, this is his job and he's the guy and he's got a unique skill set. And I remember my older brother Damon saying, I have never seen someone throw outbreaking routes, you know, and especially at the college level where you got the wide hashes. I mean, it's one thing at the NFL level, it's the fields, uh, you don't have those hash marks. But at the collegiate level, he was just like, bro, I mean, wait till you see this in person. Like, he just throws comebacks and outs and it just better than anybody else. And, and he does. I mean, those outbreaking vertical stuff at times, you know, because he slings it can be a little flat and he may miss because um, I don't think this is the greatest strength of up and down. Yes, but anything, <laughs> anything horizontal, anything laterally, any missile that needs to be shot like from zero to 50 with unbelievable velo, he has got it. And then what's truly, I think, different is he just doesn't get hit. You know, I mean, he just, he has that extra little sense that you just can't teach and you could do all these drills and everything you want to do. And, and certainly all these QB trainers and gurus out there have guys and throw med balls at them and beat them with sticks and try to get them to... And then there's just certain guys, Greg, and you know this, that just have a feel and like, yep, I'll just retreat. I, I, the extra guy's coming. I'll get it out. I mean, he was sacked 11 times in 13 games. 
and with teams after the ASU game saying, okay, we got to get out right. of them. You know, we got to <laughs> start hitting this guy. Um, but he just has a pretty sixth uh, sense about that. Um, I think it's one of his greatest gifts that doesn't get talked about. And he knows how to protect himself after getting beat up so early in his career at Indiana. And moving to the defense, uh, I think it's an underrated group. I know their numbers are bad. Um, they feel better than they are, though. I, like when you watch them, it's like okay, they're they're not they're not a bad group at all. And then you look at the numbers, like good lord, really? You know, it's like yeah. I, I I don't really understand it because I look at Jabbar Muhammad, for instance, on the outside. Like I think he's a good cover guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I know they're going to play quarters. I know they're going to play some zone, but like he's a pretty good cover guy. I think the safeties at times a little up and down, but they've had guys that have been hurt. That's like right. Vince Nunley's been out quite a bit. Asa Turner's been out forever. Um, Fabikulanen's been out for a little bit. I mean, guys have been banged up, so they've almost had to plug and play. At time so I feel like that group is vastly underrated when they're at full strength and then Elijah Jackson on the other hand okay sure there's been some ups and downs with the young players to be expected but I think the secondary and they're obviously got to be good against Texas a really good passing attack but I think they're better than what people realize would you get the same sense yeah you know they kind of remind me of the Chiefs defense at times and Chiefs are a little better in totality this year because the offense has been down but over the last few years where it's been like you know they're not they're not great. Their numbers aren't great, but man, Chris Jones, a difference maker. Yeah. Right. And Frank Clark was a difference maker and they just seem to come up with a sack or a takeaway or they're just pretty sound and they know their scheme really well. Braylon Trice is phenomenal. He's awesome. going to be a first round. Yeah, pick. He's incredible. He's, he's, yeah. he's unbelievable. Like his <laughs> motor never, ever, 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 ever stops. Um, ZTF on the other side had come off an injury. He lost his father. He lost some weight. He's, I think he will benefit from this month of, of getting, you know, as, as healthy mentally, physically, emotionally as, as he can get. And those two are a little different. They've got a kid, um, and his name is escaping me right now, Greg, but he was out all year because of the transfer rule. Yeah. From Sioux Falls. Durfee. Uh, Durfee. Zach when I Durfee. Was out at, bro, <laughs> when I was out of practice, I was watching the scout team and this dude was giving Roger and, and Fautanu like the business, like, and I said to Ken, who is that guy? He's like, bro. This dude is different now. I mean, he's we could have used him immensely this year. Yeah. So you you talk about like this pickup out of nowhere that is going to be available for the bowl game, and the Tuli Latuli Nasanoa in the middle is kind of their Chris Jones, right? right. I, I, I looked at one point, Greg, and this was I think before the Apple Cup. He had something like in his career seventeen tackles for loss. Mm-hmm. Every other interior D lineman for the whole team added up to twelve. Like he's the guy. And he was out and up and down this year with a knee injury. So you get him, you get Trice, you get Muhammad, you get a little bit of playmaking from a lot of the other depth, and you kind of get the Chiefs defense that just knew how to rise to the occasion when it mattered the most. And they did that down the stretch. They did it in the fourth quarter down the stretch. Their fourth quarter numbers were phenomenal. That's coaching. That's adjusting. That's veteran players. And having some dudes that can rush and those two dudes off the edge and now maybe three or four off the edge uh, (laughs) should benefit them in that dome down in New Orleans. And then finally, the second-level defenders against Texas with how Sark mixes run pass and play action and – those guys are going to be in a lot of conflict. I mean, yeah. it's it's that's a hard that's a hard job. I mean, yep. so yep. I actually think they're pretty talented. Carson Bruner stepping in, um, you know, guys have been banged up at times. I think Carson Bruner's been excellent for him. Uh, Yula Fashio's been good for a couple of years now when he's been available. And then Tuputala, I think he's a good player. I think they have good linebackers, but. I do think that is an area where I'd be a little concerned if I were a yeah. Husky fan, just knowing how yep. much Sark can throw at you. So how do they kind of 
How do they manage that position knowing that there could be some challenges? No, I think it will be. And last year, I think in the Alamo Bowl, didn't Quinn throw for almost 370 yards? Like, I mean, he, he was able to to get the ball out and spit it out. And that RPO game is dangerous. And that run game and their mix and their O-line. Like, it's just, this is probably going to be a game in the 30s. You know, I, I would be surprised if it's not. I think both offenses will be able to score. I think the environment will be phenomenal. I think conditioning for both will play a role. You know, when I watched Greg, and, and I know you watch at Alamo Bowl, and you'll probably watch it a bunch leading up to the Sugar Bowl, <laughs> you saw both teams get a little gassed. <clears throat> you saw the big guys on both sides of the line of scrimmage because both these defenses are going to say, okay, put together 10 or 12. We're not going to yeah. give you one or two. Go ahead. Put together. Here's six. Here's four. Here's seven. Here's six. Here's seven. <laughs> and you started to see that in last year's game. And you saw the big guys like, oh, barely in and out of their stances at times. So that will be certainly something I will be watching for. That second level is not tremendously long. You know, that's where the Georgias and the Bamas and the elite teams that have length at 6'3 and, you know, 245 at linebacker, where Michigan's got some of that size and length. Washington doesn't have that at the second level. Therefore, I think it will be a little bit challenged. And, you know, I think you and Sean, man, are up and set for one heck of a matchup on both sides. Yeah, we're on the same page, man. Like, I look, I think the Rose Bowl is going to be amazing. It's the Rose Bowl with Texas and Alabama. Or, excuse yep. me, it's the Rose Bowl with Alabama and Michigan. Like, <laughs> yeah, people will watch. <laughs> like, no doubt. Yep. I do think that – But it might that, be in the teens. I mean, that yeah, might if, be 20 to 17. It might know? be It might be 9-6. I mean, there was yes. no, it's selling. It, it could be. But this one, I think, between Texas and Washington, the mass, matchup's fascinating. And I couldn't think of anyone better to help break us down, man. I appreciate you, Brock. Thanks, brother. You got it, Greg. Anytime, man. Have a blast. Chip Kelly, while their team was victorious on Saturday night, most of the news coming from the bowl games played on the opening day of bowl season is actually coming from the post-game press conference from Chip Kelly himself. I've long been an admirer of Chip Kelly. I think he's smart. I think he's cerebral. I think he's been around a long time, and he has seen the game evolve. He's also spent time at the FCS level. He spent time in the NFL and he's had not one, but two very successful runs in the Pac-12 at both Oregon and at UCLA. So I think he is uniquely positioned to comment on the world of college football. Let's take a listen to what he had to say after the game on Saturday. I think we need to have a conference commissioner. I think football should be separate from the other sports. Just the fact that our school is leaving to go to the Big Ten in football, our, our softball team should be playing Arizona in softball. Our basketball team should be playing Arizona in basketball, but because football left. And they say, well, how do you do that? Well, Notre Dame's independent in football, and they're in a conference and everything else. I think we should all be independent in football. And you can have a 64-team conference that's in the Power Five, and you can have a 64-team conference in the Group of Five, and we separate it, and we play each other. You can have the West Coast teams, and then every year we play seven games against the West Coast teams, and then we play the East. So we play Syracuse, Boston College, Pitt, West Virginia, Virginia. Then the next year you play against the South while you still play your seven teams. You can play a seven-game schedule. You can play four against another conference, another division opponent, and you can always play against one Mountain West team every year so that we can still keep those rivalries going. Not that I've really thought about this. <laughs> Not that I've a lot of spent time on this. But I think if you went together collectively as a group and said there's 132 teams and we all share, in the, same we all share the same TV contract, so that the Mountain West doesn't have one and the Sun Belt doesn't have another and SEC has one and they have another, that we all go together. That's a lot of games and there's a lot of people in the TV world that would go through it. 
You can sponsor each one. Instead of calling it Group of Five and Power Five, you can call it Amazon, Nike, bid that out to things. You know, a lot of different things. But I think if we still do the same thing and take all that money, and I would do this, and I think this needs to be done, that money now needs to be shared with the student athletes, and there needs to be revenue sharing, and the players should get paid, and you can get rid of NLI, and the schools should be paying the players because the players are what the product is. And the fact that they don't get paid is really the biggest travesty. So there he is, and, and you get to listen to pretty much everything he has to say. I think it's thoughtful. I think it makes sense. Uh, I think it's easily consumable, and it's been a hot button topic really for the last 48 hours as people have weighed in on what it was that he had to say. Here's what I would say about it. One, we were actually very close to this potentially happening um, prior to realignment. There were some schools that were a little frustrated with their current circumstances. And there was, I think, amongst people that are in the know, there was maybe a little momentum being created for Texas and potentially Oklahoma, USC and UCLA, those being the four first to move. There was a little momentum towards them potentially becoming independent. And then there was the possibility of those four schools, along with Notre Dame, to begin recruiting other schools when they're grant of rights would ultimately expire. As a result, feels like maybe the conferences got out in front of it and basically slowed down any momentum that could be generated because it's scary. The conferences and the security that comes with the conferences is the bird in the hand. The possibility of going independent, that's the bird in the bush. It might be beneficial to be independent, but scheduling might become more difficult. You could very easily get locked out. Notre Dame's just fortunate because they have an agreement with the ACC for their scheduling, and they also are a very desirable product. Let's be real. With all due respect to fill-in-the-blank university, not everyone moves the needle like Notre Dame. If Iowa State, for example, were to go independent and maybe put together their own television deal, it wouldn't be anywhere near what Notre Dame's television model would be. No disrespect to Iowa State, it's just the reality of the size and scope of Notre Dame's reach. So independence was a possibility at one point. Now, when we talk about the idea of putting together 64 teams in the P5, 64 teams in the G5, and then you maintain regionality, one thing I would say about that is we're kind of already moving in that direction. I mean, you see 18, 16, 14 teams in specific leagues. That, to me, is already the direction that we're going. And I don't get the sense, at least at this point, I don't get the sense that Tony Petiti in the Big Ten, I don't get the sense that Greg Sankey in the SEC are wanting to relinquish power in favor of the greater good. Why would they? They're already in complete control of some of the biggest brands in the sport. They are going to do whatever it takes for those 14, 16, 18 schools under their umbrella to be as profitable as it may be. I think the biggest point of, I guess, contention, takeaway, discussion that Brian Kelly, uh, that Chip Kelly brought up is whether or not the players should be paid. I totally think that we're moving in that direction as well. Whether it's revenue sharing, collective bargaining, that's going to happen. It's just a matter of whether it happens two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. Whenever that day comes, it will happen. But the problem is, and as someone that is a member of the NFLPA, as someone that played professionally, I know that in 2011, when we had a lockout, the players broke immediately. 
Why? Because the union wasn't very strong. And the NFL owners got exactly what they wanted. That was with millionaires. Imagine doing it with 18 to 22-year-old kids. If you think that those guys are going to be able to collectively bargain against universities, I'm just going to tell you, I don't feel real strongly about that working out real well for the players. I'm just telling you. As someone that lived it, as someone whose career was in some ways defined by it, it won't happen. This is not the NBA PA where there's only 400 players, 300 players, 200 players, or whatever in the world that are doing what they do. This isn't the NFL where it's 16 to 1,700 players. We're talking about tens of thousands of players playing college football that are going to collectively bargain. I don't think it's going to work out very well, just being honest. And the other thing I'd say, people say, well, it's not a lot of money. Let's say, for instance, and Josh Pate used this number the other day when he was talking about this as well. He said, what if they paid every player $50,000? Well, over the course of an 85 scholarship players, that would only be you know $4 million or so. Sure, yes, that while that's accurate, these guys now are in an event in which if they put their name in the portal, they can leverage and essentially hold out to make as much money as other teams are willing to pay. Is the model broken? Absolutely. Is it going to get fixed? No, because if I were a player, why would I want it to get fixed? Right now, everything about college football is working in favor of the player. There is absolutely nothing that is working in favor of the coach, and there is nothing that is working in favor of the university. The players are in a pay-for-play situation where they can leverage their own school on an annual basis for more money or in the event in which another place gives them more money for a new opportunity. If I'm a player, I don't want to collectively bargain. If I'm a player, I don't want anything to change because right now I can do whatever I want without any anything that could potentially come away from me. Now, is there risk? Sure. There's a possibility that when Kyle McCord leaves a starting role at Ohio State, that he ends up in the portal and what if nobody takes him? I think it's unlikely, but what if nobody takes him? Or what if his circumstances are nowhere near as good as the pasture that is green, the one that he leaves? That's a possibility and you run the risk. But at the same time, all the players, I think for the most part, are benefiting from this. There are several players, several players that are getting paid tons of money and probably... Let's be honest. Is the school getting a lot of return? Probably not. But at least they have a chance. If you have a quarterback, a la Dylan Gabriel, you have a chance. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win the national championship, but you have a chance. So if I'm the players, I don't want anything to change at all whatsoever as far as pay for play right now, because it's certainly working out in your favor. The other part that he discussed is the regionality and how, well, the West Coast schools will play the West Coast schools and the Southern schools will play the Southern schools and the East Coast schools will play the East Coast schools and the Midwest schools, they can play themselves as well. Well, since when are all, since when is the world fair or when is the quality equivalent in regionality in sports? We have regionality right now in the Big Ten. And tell me how competitive the Big Ten West has been when compared to the Big Ten East. The answer, it hasn't been. Because regionality doesn't define quality. 
the most successful schools right now over the last decade have been in the southeastern part of the United States. Whether it's Georgia, whether it's Bama, whether it's Florida, whether it's Clemson, those really for the most part, LSU included, those are the schools that have won the most championships in the last 10 years, okay? Yes, Ohio State has one in 14, but it's not necessarily equivalent. Yes, there have been representation on the West Coast in the playoff in the past, 2016, Washington, 2014, Oregon, 2023, Washington. There have been some, but it's not the same. So regionality, while important, has not really been an indicator of success. People say, well, why don't we just adopt the NFL model? Well, that would be helpful, perhaps, but that would require a kid from, let's say, Mississippi to basically enter a draft and he might have to go play for Stanford. Hey, sorry, if we're going to keep things equal and all the divisions need to be equal, then you're from Mississippi. I know you don't, I know you might want to stay at home. You might want to go to Ole Miss, but guess what? You have to go to Stanford because we want to level the playing field. It's not the way it works. Most of the players are going to want to stay at least somewhat close to home. Some will be willing to go elsewhere, but a lot of them will probably go to school in an area of the country in which they're most familiar. And that's why you see more NFL players coming from the SEC, see more NFL players come from the Southeastern United States. And while Ohio State can recruit nationally, Michigan can recruit nationally, their rosters are not the same as some of the schools that they also would occupy that Midwestern footprint with. Virginia's roster is not going to be comparable to that of Florida State's. It's just not, or at least it hasn't been at any point in college football's history. So I don't know if regionality, while it's important, I don't know if we need to necessarily start figuring out from a logistics standpoint, hey, yeah, you know what? We need to keep this West Coast teams and the West Coast division. Yeah, they're going to get the same representation in the college football playoff as a team that comes from the state of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. I'm sorry. There's more good, high-quality players that are playing in Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama than there are in Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and California. Perhaps. Just per capita. Just per capita. So I don't think regionality is something that we need to use, but I do think we are full speed ahead towards someday having one college football, I guess you could call it league. And it's going to be the best 64, 60, 55, 50. The most competitive teams will break away. It's going to happen. I can't tell you when, but I would imagine it'll probably be in the next 10 to 15 years. And we will resemble a model that is extremely comparable to what we see in the NFL, to where the NFL is the granddaddy of them all, and you'll have 50 or so, 60 or so, maybe 65, perhaps even 70 schools that are vying for the top prize. And everyone else will be relegated to a division that is lower. It's not fun to talk about. Doesn't make me feel good because there's plenty of G5 teams that I love, but they do not have the resources to compete with the teams that might ultimately start paying their players in an effort to curb some of the behavior that's going on in denial. Little portal update. Felt like it was appropriate now that guys are committing and we're starting to get a little more clarity of what the portal might look like this year. Some notable attractions. Up to this point, we've mostly done quarterbacks. 
But now we're gonna take a little bit of a step forward towards more team-oriented assessments of how some teams have done. We're gonna start with Syracuse because they have made maybe the biggest splash so far with their addition of Kyle McCord. They also have a new coach in the former defensive back coach from Georgia, Fran Brown's taken over at Syracuse and he was brought in because he's a great recruiter. Well, starting to come to fruition for the Orange, at least at the moment. Kyle McCord has officially committed on Sunday, just a day or two ago, he just committed to Syracuse. You leave the starting job at Ohio State to go become the starting quarterback at Syracuse. I'm not sure what world we're living in, but it's an important move nonetheless because I think that when Fran Brown was hired on November 28th, people felt like it might become more desirable for recruits. The staff, I think, is doing a pretty dang good job on the recruiting trail already. It's not really, at this point, not real clear exactly how many guys they're going to bring in in the portal. Right now, they've had just four guys commit in the portal, but they're in the lead, according to a couple publications, for a few others. They do have to fill a couple of significant voids. They lost 14 to the portal when this coaching change went down to begin with. So it does feel like there's a few guys that are going to be making their move to Western New York there, Central New York. I know I always get that confused. Is it Central? Is it Western? I don't know. But Zed Haynes is transferred from Georgia. Jackson Meeks is transferred from Georgia. And James Hurd was a linebacker. He's transferred from West Virginia. So you got a quarterback in McCord, two wide receivers from Georgia, and a linebacker from West Virginia with a few others, including an edge defender from Texas A&M that might be calling Syracuse home. So it's been a really good start for Fran Brown so far here the first couple weeks on the job. Another school that's doing a really good job in the portal at the moment, that would be Texas Tech. They're trying as of right now, and you look at the Big 12, with the departures of Texas and Oklahoma, the new additions, Texas Tech had a disappointing year. There's no denying that. I think you look at, at how things went. You get a win over Cal. That's not really the recruiting momentum that you want heading into next year. But hey, 7-6 and six feels better than 6-7. Six and seven. I don't care what anybody, I don't care what anybody says. Joey McGuire, I think, did a pretty good job of kind of flipping the script there in the end of the year and playing a little better down the stretch with the exception of that Texas game. But so far, they've added eight in the portal. They've added a wide receiver from Florida. They've added a wide receiver from Washington State and Josh Kelly, who I think is pretty dang good. They've also done a good job of going and adding a couple pieces along the offensive line, one from Memphis, one from Toledo. And they've also gone out and got a couple of DBs, which is significant as well because that group in the back end had some ups and downs for sure. And they really needed, they absolutely had to load up at wide receiver. They lost six different receivers to the portal. So getting Josh Kelly from Washington State was significant. Now, he was pretty good this year in the Pac-12. He actually finished eighth in the Pac-12 in receiving yards, had just under 1,000 yards, had eight touchdowns and 61 catches. He started his career a little before that as Fresno State. So he'll be a sixth-year senior there. And he's also going to be paired with the five-star recruit in Micah Hudson, as well as Caleb Douglas, the transfer from Florida, who's a really big target. So it, to me, makes a lot of sense that they have gone and tried to find difference makers at the receiver spot, and they've done a really good job of that up to this point. So Texas Tech has done a nice job filling some voids of some recent departures. TCU's also done a nice job as well. They've gone out and added eight pieces 
also. Three weapons, two at wide receiver, one at tight end. A couple offensive linemen, three to be, four to be exact, excuse me. Cade Bennett from San Diego State, Carson Bruno from Louisiana Tech, Bless Harris from Florida State, who'd been around for quite a while at Florida State. Now will step in more than likely to a starting role. And Howard Sampson from North Texas. This was important too. If you look at what happened this past year, to go from a national championship runner-up situation, finishing the season 13-2, and Sonny Dykes just burst onto the scene, falling all the way back to 5-7 and seven in second year, felt like everybody, hey, maybe it's time to press the reset button. And they did a pretty good job in the portal last year. If you actually look and, and see some of the pieces that they added, there were some guys that were highly sought after in the portal and did a decent job. But now they feel like they needed to go to it yet again. Remember, they have a new defensive coordinator in Andy Avalos. So it's going to be a little bit different with how they might structure their defense from top to bottom. So that could be really beneficial for them as well. They're also in the running for a few other guys that haven't decided just yet. But TCU has been another team that deserves a little credit for how they've handled the portal at this point of the offseason. Colorado maintains its status as one of the top quarterback or excuse me, one of Colorado maintains their status. They have added a quarterback, I might add, that Walter Taylor from Vanderbilt. But they have definitely done a great job in the last couple seasons going out and making sure that they can bring in top-tier personnel in the portal. Remember, Dion's the one that told us that his luggage was Louie. Now he's continuing to show us that that is still the case. A couple quarterbacks that have brought in. One from Vanderbilt and Walter Taylor. One from Kentucky and Destin Wade. Be interesting to see how things shake out. We all know that Shador, at the moment, is at least going to be starting quarterback here in 2024. But they had to find a few more pieces in the portal at wide receiver. Will Shepard is the main addition there. I'm very excited about what he might do. But they added two more in Terrell Timmons from NC State, who can really run, and Cordell Russell from TCU. It'll be interesting to see how they handle it. They also got a tight end in Shaman Mateer from Cincinnati. The big issue though for, for Colorado this offseason and really throughout the season was their offensive line. I mean, offensive line was atrocious. And I know that there were some guys that were ineligible, so hopefully they'll help and maybe be a little bit more physically mature heading into this upcoming season. But to go out and add the pieces along the offensive line that they did is significant. They added five along the offensive line. Matthew Bedford from Indiana, Khalil Benson from Indiana, Tyler Johnson from Houston, Justin Mayers from UTEP, and Yakiri Walker from UConn. To add five guys up front to at least establish some depth is significant. They've also gone out and said, man, we also weren't very good along the defensive line. So we got to add a couple pieces there. They did, including Quincy Wiggins from LSU. And then at linebacker, they added Keaton Wade from Kentucky and a defensive back from Liberty in Preston Hodge. Now this is massive for Colorado. If they're going to try to make any inroads moving forward, especially in the Big 12, they got to be better along the line of scrimmage. And they were able to do that. They've gone out gotten a couple pieces along the offensive line, Myers and Walker in particular. They've combined for 114 career starts and have played more than 8,000 snaps. That's massive for Shador Sanders and him to build on what was a really good year one there in Boulder. So I think Colorado has done exactly what they needed to do. They don't need more weapons. They don't need more talent at the skill positions. We know that. They have that. They had that last year, but talent at the skill positions does not translate to 
to success against the top programs in the sport. That's why they struggled when they played against quality competition. But now reinforcements are coming along the offensive line, and that should hopefully help Prime and Shador <laughs> take another step here in year number two there in Boulder. Louisville was a massive player in the portal last year, and they look like they're going to continue to be a big player moving forward, and I love the class that they've assembled so far. You go and get Tyler Shuck from Texas Tech, that was massive. When he's healthy, he's a top 20 quarterback in the sport more than likely. All right, He's got a lot of ability, has been around a lot. The problem is he's been banged up quite a bit in his career. They also added a great running back in Donald Chaney from Miami. Now, he most famously this year is remembered for the fumble against Georgia Tech at the end of the game. But if you watch how he played, it was a running back by committee approach at Miami. He was really good, more of a power back, more of a slasher, more of a downhill guy, a one cut back, but does have some power. So I think he will fit well in Jeff Brom's system. He did a really good job this past year with a couple of running backs with different skill sets. He'll make sure that Donald Cheney gets plenty of touches in an offense that will lean heavily on the run game, but I've been most impressed with what they've added at wide receiver. Ja'Cory Brooks at Alabama was a really solid player, just never really found his footing as a top guy. And then Colin Lacey from South Alabama, that might be the most intriguing person that they've added so far. Now, he's not huge, just 5'10", 190, but he was the nation's fourth leading receiver in yards per game and had 91 catches for over 1,300 yards plus seven touchdowns. He actually had a seven-game streak of 100-plus yard receiving performances, including 104-2 and two against Oklahoma State when South Alabama dominated the Pokes that day. So he's pretty dang good and something to keep in mind. And I referenced Brooks. He was a former five-star, and in 22, he was the second-leading receiver on Alabama's team. Now, he did have a shoulder injury this year, so it didn't really all work out but they should be in pretty good shape, making him a featured piece when they move forward. So I think the additions that they've made really all over the field, they have a couple at receiver, one at running back, one at quarterback, a couple at tight end. Like They got a bunch of guys that are coming in, and Jeff Brom and his creativity will be on full display next year with all these new weapons to potentially build around. And then finally, the Portal King is back at it again. That would be the Ole Miss Rebels, and that would be Lane Kiffin. Nine commitments so far out of the portal with a few more that are potentially on the way. I think this is probably the group at Ole Miss that has embraced the portal and has had the most success in the portal. And Juice Wells, he's the big one here. He was the number one wide receiver in the portal, had a massive year two years ago. He's 6'1", 2'10". In 2022, he was a first-team All-SEC player. Had 68 catches for 928 yards and six touchdowns in his first year with South Carolina. But he had a foot injury this year, played just three games, and really could never get back to doing any of the things that he was doing the year before. And Ole Miss doesn't need a lot of help on offense. right? They're going to be in good shape on that side of the ball for sure. Jackson Dart is back at quarterback. Quinshawn Judkins will be back at running back. Their leading receiver, Trey Harris, is back and pretty much everybody else. But this portal hall is about really the defense. And that's where things have changed drastically. If you look at where they were last year, they were number 11 in the SEC after the 22 season. They were number six in the SEC this year in scoring defense during their conference play. 
Because now it's time for maybe, maybe them to take the next step. Here's the big question. Walter Nolan is arguably the best player in the portal. He's formerly of Texas A&M, was really disruptive at times this past year, and it sounds like he is going to be heading to Oxford, Mississippi. Now, we don't know for sure, and it's not a done deal, but this is a guy that in 2022 was the number two overall player coming out of high school and has lived up to those expectations the last couple of years. But he's not the only one. They've gone out and added a few other guys along the defensive line that could be playing significant roles for the Rebels next year. Princely Uman Mielin, he's got great length off the edge. You have a few others in the front seven defensively. You have a guy or two in the back end that could immediately contribute. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what Ole Miss does. And then when you take a look, too, at their 2024 schedule, comparing to what they had this past year, you got Oklahoma, Kentucky, Florida, and South Carolina, in place of Alabama, AM, Auburn, and Vanderbilt. All right. Their Power Five non conference game is Wake Forest. Georgia's still on the schedule, but that's a pretty dang nice slate for a group that's won 10 plus games in two of the last three years. So remember, this year, if the 12 team playoff were in existence, Ole Miss would be in the playoff. So you think about where they were on defense, you think about the pieces they might be adding, and the possibility of breaking down that door next year and punching their ticket to the playoff, it's becoming very real with some of the additions they've made in the portal. Before we put a bow on the show, a couple of coaching moves that everyone needs to know about. Start with Troy. John Summerall left Troy to become the head coach at Tulane, which I think was a great move by Tulane, by the way. I think John Summerall's a really good coach. Jared Parker now will move as the OC at Notre Dame. He's now going to be the head coach at Troy, so that's an interesting hire. And Marcus Freeman now at Notre Dame will be looking for his third different offensive coordinator in his third year. Not an easy thing to figure out, but I know there's a little bit of a love-hate with Notre Dame fans and Jared Parker, so maybe they're not too disappointed to see him go. I think he's a good coach. I think he's a, he's a solid Solid dude, been around him quite a bit. So I think he'll do nice things at Troy. But I know Notre Dame fans probably aren't going to lose their mind about potentially losing Jared Parker, their OC from this past season. Another big splash that was made by the Penn State Nittany Lions. Tom Allen, the former head coach at Indiana, has been hired by James Franklin to be his defensive coordinator. Now, this is significant. It's the second coordinator hire of the month, Andy Kotelnicki was hired to replace Mike Yersich on the offense. And if you look at the defense too, Tom Allen's stepping into a pretty desirable spot. Now, Manny Diaz became the head coach at Duke. But Penn State led. They led the FBS in yards per play allowed this year. Pretty dang impressive. And if you look at Tom Allen too, granted, there was a moment when he was at Indiana where you're like, man, this guy's the next guy. Like he's going to take the college football world by storm. Leo, love each other. I mean, everybody kind of loved Indiana there for a very short period of time, but he's still just 53 years old. And granted, yeah, 33 and 49 in his seven years as the Indiana head coach. It didn't end up the way he wanted it to end up, but he has had some success as a defensive coordinator, both at Indiana and at South Florida prior to that, after spending three years on the Ole Miss staff. So he's set to take over a defense that was elevated significantly, thanks in part to what Manny Diaz did. But this will be a little bit different approach. 
This is not quite, or at least Tom Allen has not been in the past, a guy that's going to just pin their ears back and blitz the house. He does a great job in creating issues for quarterbacks' eyes. They do a good job in disguise, and now he inherits a group that has a lot of talent on all three levels of their defense. So that's going to be a really nice move, I think, for James Franklin. I'll be curious to see how things work out and how they structure the defense there as Tom Allen takes over that side of the ball. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Plenty of bowl games to look forward to this week. We will be back later in the week to help break down some of those bowl games that are coming up on Saturday, including one that I will be on the call for. I will explain it a little later in the week as well, but we felt like there were some big picture discussions that needed to be had today before we dove into some of the individual matchups. We will continue breaking down some of the matchups that we'll have in the New Year's Six. We will continue breaking down some of the matchups that we'll have in the college football playoff, and we are set. I'm not going to tease it just yet because things happen and schedules get you know a little bit turned around and guys get pulled in different directions, but there is a coach that is leading a program in the college football playoff that will join the show, or at least is scheduled to join the show, and his helmet might be directly behind me, And for those that are not watching on YouTube, their colors are burnt orange and white. I will tell you whether or not he is going to be on the show a little later, but he might, just might, be able to join us later in the week to help break down Texas's season and help break down what they've done up to this point. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Continue to ask you to like, to rate the show wherever you get the show on whatever podcast platform you use your ratings help us doesn't matter what you rate as long as you rate that helps the algorithm so we really really appreciate all of you that have done that especially in the last couple weeks we also encourage you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast so that'd be awesome as well so we appreciate all that you guys do for us and we promise that we will continue to deliver great college football discussion every single time we release an episode for all of us here for jack jake mark The other Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.